Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast, the fear and loathing edition. I'm Nick Maronin, your editor in exile, and I'm joined as always by our photo editor, Kevin Hume. How's it going, Kevin? How you doing, man? Uh, well, my um, stress levels have been up because uh, I've been falling into the doom scroll more and more. The doom um, scroll. Yeah, reading the, reading just negative news. Um, Thanks a lot, liberal media. Uh, but Thanks, so, Obama. You know, last week it was the fires and like um, my parents bugging me to watch the uh, Democratic National Convention. And I was mm-hmm. like, I'd rather play video games. You know who I'm voting for. <laughs> right. Um, and this week, um, lots of lots of think pieces about the Republican National Convention, Ugh. which, you know has been just like one long advertisement for the Trump cult of personality, as far as I can tell. Yep. Um, but I'm cautiously optimistic that enough Americans can see through the bullshit by now. I mean, it just, it feels like this party doesn't have any ideas. It's running on fear and loathing and jingoism. And it's just, it's kind of disheartening. It really is. That couple from St. Louis, Kluskies. Uh. They uh, made an appearance. That was, that's a keynote speaker. I think they were prime time. Um, rich assholes. <laughs> you can dress them up any way you like. And like, maybe like, maybe just maybe you could have made the argument that they were trying to defend their home. But I mean, when you, once you just scratch the surface of who these people are, they're really just a bunch of uptight busybodies who told um, some protesters to get off their lawn. Yeah. Um, they have this history of being super litigious um, suing neighbors over the most Karen-esque of grievances, <laughs> including including one lawsuit where they took, so they live in a gated community, um, yeah. uh, where they took issue with an unmarried gay couple living in their gated community. Oh my God. A fight that they took all the way to the state Supreme Court. So these are the folks who arguably represent the worst part of living in the suburbs who are saying like, the suburbs are under attack. The suburbs are under attack from whom? Like you said, uh, you know, it, it's gated off, maybe a private street, but it's close to downtown. The mayor lives there. That's yeah. who they were going to. They didn't give a shit about the McCluskeys. Right. They were marching down the street. They weren't on maybe the sidewalk. Like, who cares? The sidewalk is public, usually being able to walk on, even in a fucking private community. Let's look at this. What is the actual risk of hordes of demonstrators flooding into the suburbs where um, where public officials don't live? Zero. I mean, right. This was a very specific instance, and it's being you know spun into this. The suburbs are under attack, which is a big dog whistle, right? Yes. For you know white America. I don't know, man. Like in the instances where people have gone to like Mayor Breed's apartment house, whatever, and like. Uh, Mayor Libby Schaaf's uh, house in Oakland, like they're the only thing that they've done, which I mean, it's disrespectful, but like they've only, they've just left like tags and like protested out in front and like, you know, done things like left messages for them out in front to be able Mm -hmm. to let them know like what they're saying. There hasn't been like break-ins. There haven't been any, forms of vandalism other than maybe tagging on the outside of their houses, which look, you can look at that whichever way you want. Well, and it's so, it's just so hypocritical. Like the, 
there, there are so many figures and events in history that conservative commentators would revere the Boston Tea Party, for mm-hmm. example, uh, a huge destruction of yeah. private property. The, the Boston Massacre uh, was set off because uh, folks were uh, throwing rocks at the authorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to go back in time and not throw those rocks? Be like, uh, sir, uh, sir. <laughs> Can, can you and your uh, your occupying force please leave America? No, I don't want to advocate violence, but it, it, it's hypocrite. I just feel it feels it feels hypocritical. You know, and I mean, it's just crazy because like, you know, the, the scene the other night in Kenosha, the Trump administration allowed two people who are only famous for pulling guns on peaceful protesters to speak. Then, then the next night this happens is just evident that this is what they want. They want this clash to keep happening, to keep people distracted from all the bad things that Trump has done and to distract from the fact that he has completely mismanaged this country with not only the coronavirus response, but just in general. Yeah. And I mean, like, say what you want about the Democratic Party, but let's talk about what the Democratic Party is trying to do. I'm not like a huge fan of the Democratic Party, I think they've, you know, in in many ways, just been another example of entrenched power. But they have ideas. They're trying to do things. They're talking about bringing health care to every American. They're talking about trying to do something, anything about climate change. They're taking a sober look at institutional inequality and and saying that we need to do something about it. And what are Republicans doing? They're saying, we got ours. Too bad for you get off our lawn. And it's so hypocritical to me that this party of personal responsibility, the party of stop whining, pull yourself up by your bootstraps is just complaining and playing the victim. Exactly. Oh, the, pe- the, the people who serve us food and cut our hair want multifamily affordable housing so they can afford to live close to where they work. But we don't like apartments. The media is unfair toward Trump because they fact check the things that he says. And because he completely bungled the response to the pandemic. <laughs> The people are demanding that they get more than just table scraps instead of in our current super fair system where an increasingly small number of oligarchs hard wealth like smog. Oh, boo-hoo. And I have a black friend. I'm not racist. It's proof right there. It's just proof. Ugh, give me a break. Ugh. I know. We're just kind of ranting to the choir here. All right. Trump and co. are giving the base what they want. Yep. Red meat. Speaking of red meat. Kevin, do you know what chipped beef is? Yeah, I think I do. <laughs> it's uh, like what they make like cheese stick out of. Okay. It's it's kind of one step up from ground beef, I think. It's kind of like like just lots of different chips of beef from probably the cow, you know, from all parts of the cow. Mm-hmm. Um anyway, I don't like to turn down free things. And um the other day I was offered some free frozen chipped beef and I was kind of eating lunch at the time. My roommate, um, apparently his friend, who is Halal, uh, accidentally bought this um, thinking it was a good deal and then realized it wasn't Halal Mm -hmm. um, and didn't know what to do with it. So my roommate says, "Uh, do you you want some beef? Um, And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, And at some point he said 10 pounds and that just kind of like went one ear and out the other. (laughs) So I have... (laughs) I have 10 pounds of chipped beef. Oh my God. You have I couldn't even beef. I could. It's, yeah. It's what's for dinner forever. <laughs> no, apparently I couldn't even fit it in my fridge, man. Oh my my God. Freezer. Yeah. So I've been calling people. I know you're a vegetarian or else maybe I would have called you. 
yeah, I'm I'm eating mostly vegan these days. I, I I can't even remember the last time I had a proper hamburger, let alone chip beef. Chip beef, baby. It's been a couple months for sure. Um, yeah. Also, that just doesn't sound appealing. <laughs> anytime, um, anytime. Growing up, uh, my dad brought up chip beef was to refer to <laughs> shit on a shingle, which is just it does not sound good. I'm gonna make a cheesesteak for a late lunch today. All right, that does sound delicious. And and some friends are gonna take me up on the chipped beef. Okay, I'll if, offer. If the cheesesteak goes well, definitely recommend that to friends and or maybe start an illegal cheese sh- cheesesteak <laughs> shop business out of your garage. Oh yeah. Well, coming up on the podcast, we'll have some lighter fare. We'll break down why Muni just can't get its trains running on time with Examiner staff writer Carly Graff. Oh, God. And we'll catch up with CJ Prusi, who recently wrote a quarantine thoughts essay about getting married during a pandemic. Stay tuned. with Carly Graff, transportation reporter for our sister paper, the San Francisco Examiner. And we're going to talk about the state of Muni and local public transit five months into this pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, Carly. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So last weekend, Muni was all set to reopen its train service, uh, which has been offline since March. And they did restart the service. But then uh, almost immediately, they shut it down again. Can you uh, tell us what happened there? Sure. So you are correct. It shut down Monday night after about three days. Um, the plan was essentially to return with a revamped rail system. So the idea was that they were going to be combining certain above ground lines um, in order to move fewer lines into the tunnel heading downtown to reduce congestion, um, ideally limit delays and not have people you know, stuck underground, especially in a moment when um, there are some worries about being in an enclosed space uh, close to other people. So they rolled all of that out. And I think as expected, when a system that big is dormant for, you know, five plus months, there there were definitely some kinks over the weekend. Um, there were some delays. There were some struggles getting enough uh, rail operators to keep things running smoothly. So they had to transition a couple of the lines over to bus service at certain points in the day. Um, But all in all, things were running fairly smooth Saturday and Sunday. And then around early, maybe 4.30 a.m. on Monday morning, um, there was a basically an overhead wire problem near Forest Hill that caused a pretty significant delay. And this is not something that's new to Muni. Um, this is part of the reason that the former SFMTA director ultimately was prompted to resign because of excessive delays associated with um, general electrical problems, but specifically um, problems with a part called the splice, which essentially allows, it basically governs kind of the intersection of different rail lines. Um, and a splice is what malfunctioned early Monday morning um, there was about a five hour period where folks were having to get off of the rail 
transfer over to a shuttle bus for the for the remainder of their trip. And it again, it took about five hours to fix. They did fix it. And then later in the evening, it was found that an employee in the Transportation Management Center, which SFMTA describes as the nerve center of the rail network, um, it was found that an employee there tested positive for COVID-19. And when they did, um, basically when they carried out their contact tracing protocol, they found that a number of people in addition to this employee would need to be quarantined. And those people also worked in this highly technical space. And so the combination of uh, this splice error, in addition to you know the, a number of, of very important folks to running the rail network needing to quarantine, ultimately led them to decide that they wouldn't be able to deliver safe and reliable service on the rail. So they announced late Monday night they would be shutting it down and transitioning over instead to a bus system for those same routes. So the the theory is that no service will be lost, um, no service that was gained in that three-day period with the addition of rail. Um, however, it will be moving fewer people just by nature of the vehicles, um, and it will also be moving at a slower frequency because they can't move buses as quickly as they can move rails. So when can we realistically expect uh, train service to resume? You know, we, myself and other reporters in a press conference earlier this week did press SFMTA on that, and they said that they are not prepared to make scheduling promises. Um, what they are doing is they have found a a new distributor um, for this, this, this one part, the splice, and they're going in and they are going to replace, there's over a hundred splices across the entire system, and they are going to be replacing every one of them. So we don't have... Um, any kind of end date right now. I think that they are, they want to prepare riders that this is going to be the case for the foreseeable future. Um, but with the caveat that when it comes back, it will be coming back with, you know, a, a highly refurbished and revamped um, mechanical system um, in, in this regard. So I would say we can expect that this is going to be the case for a while. Okay. Um... More broadly, the state of public transit in San Francisco and uh, the Bay Area is pretty dire right now on account of, and sorry for any pun here, both COVID-19 and underlying pre-existing conditions, <laughs> right? Can, can, you kind of, can you kind of catch us up on what the pandemic has done to this network of agencies that we're familiar with, BART, Caltrain, and Muni, um, all of which probably had some issues, um, some weaknesses that have kind of been thrown into sharp relief here? Yeah, I think that you're totally correct that something like the COVID-19 pandemic really just sheds a tremendous amount of light on a lot of the issues that were there, but weren't quite as, ob quite as obvious all the time. Um, and a lot of that has to do across all three agencies you mentioned with where we're getting our revenue. Um, so just to kind of break it down and start with Muni, Muni estimated back in March that it was losing as much as a million dollars a week due to the coronavirus pandemic because of the drop in ridership. And basically what we've had is with, with lower demand, that means the, the majority of Muni's budget is coming from some combination of general fund allocation from the city, 
um, fare box revenue and sales tax. And we've seen a huge drop in fare box revenue and sales tax receipts. Um, and so right now, Muni's had to cut about 40% of its service and the, the limited resources it does have, the agency says it's concentrating on routes that serve transit dependent riders, essential workers, and folks with the fewest mobility options. So there are parts of the city, for example, in the mission that seem to have you know, quite a bustling transit network right now. Um, you can see buses going, they're full. Residents there are actually saying that they need more buses. Um, and buses in that area, if you look at the numbers, are actually running quicker um, and with higher ridership than they often did pre-pandemic. But then, you know, there are other parts of the city that are almost living in transit deserts. Um, the buses that they rely on, the Tenderloin is one that comes to mind. Two of the major buses that they really rely on aren't running through that neighborhood anymore. I live in the sunset and we still have the end, but a lot of the other surrounding um, buses have, have been cut severely. So they're really juggling severely limited resources right now, um, in large part because to your point, the agency has relied so heavily um, on revenue driven from fares, which we no longer have. And I would say the same story is true for Caltrain and BART. So at BART, you're basically looking at this fiscal year, a $51 million budget operating budget deficit. And again, that's almost entirely um, attributed to the fact that nobody is riding BART. You know, BART is, it's down, the lowest it hit was 6% ridership levels um, compared to its pre-pandemic, and that was back in April. It's now slowly ticked back up to around 12%. Um, of course, most of the people that are riding that are people that really need to take BART. They're continuing to come in and out of San Francisco and the Bay Area doing really critical work. They don't have cars, they're essential workers. Um, but the most crowded and, and the most used lines of BART prior to the pandemic were those in and around downtown San Francisco, which is essentially vacant at this point, as most businesses have, you know, closed, most offices have shut to their employees. So what they're facing is the question of what does a future look like without a strong commuting culture to and from downtown San Francisco? And a lot of their short-term focus has been on rolling out a 15-step plan to encourage riders that it's clean and safe to ride to ride the ride the train. But ultimately, if offices don't open, you know that's going to require a pretty fundamental rethinking of where do we prioritize resources with BART, who does BART serve, um, and the like. And then with Caltrain, for anyone who is um, following transit news closely, they probably saw a very heated battle between Santa Clara, San Mateo, and San Francisco counties um, earlier this year, where the there was a proposal to put a sales tax on the November ballot, November of this year, that would basically levy a one-eighth cent sales tax on residents of all three counties if passed by voters in order to provide Caltrain with a dedicated funding source. Because right now, um, about 70% of Caltrain's revenue um, comes from Fairbox, and then the remainder, which is dependent on ridership again, and the remainder comes from contributions from each of the three counties. So its funding has historically been fickle and unstable and frankly pretty out of its control. And there was a, a massive back and forth between the three counties um, fighting over whether a sales tax initiative should be on the ballot without any fundamental reform to the way that Caltrain is run and who runs it. Um, ultimately, they were able to settle on an agreement and there in fact will be 
a sales tax on this November ballot. So voters in San Francisco, San Mateo, and Santa Clara will all have, um, you know, the opportunity to vote yes or no on a one-eighth cent sales tax to provide some funding um, for Caltrain. But Caltrain has seen an even more severe drop in ridership compared to um, compared to BART and Muni. It's you know I think upwards of or down upwards of ninety percent. Um, so it's pretty severe. And so I think to answer your broad question about what this is, what this is unveiled or what this has revealed about our transit system regionally, it is this dependence on ridership. And right now we find ourselves in a situation where each of these three agencies is really hoping for some federal aid, some federal aid money. Um, and without it, I think that all three are going to have to really really think about what the future looks like and get creative with how they can generate new revenue and then also make some really tough decisions about the kind of service that they're willing to cut um, and the kind of changes they're willing to make, frankly, just to just to be able to stick around. And so uh, finally, what are what are some of the it's early days, I understand, um, in terms of coming up with solutions to this. But as as the people who manage these agencies are looking forward, what are some of the um, potential solutions being floated? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I would go back to that federal aid idea. Um, I would say that right now, that is something that everyone is really focused on advocating for, fighting for, and um, in many ways, hoping for. Um, unfortunately, we had expected some kind of news coming out in August um, that, you know, didn't happen. The in Washington, they were not able to reach an agreement on a relief bill. Um, and so now we're thinking that it won't be until early next year that we'll have any clarity on how much, if any, aid would be provided to transit agencies across the country. So just to be clear, this is transit agencies from all over the country coming together and calling for support. Um, and these three in, in the Bay Area would, would be the beneficiaries of that as well. Other solutions, um, you know, the, the sales tax I mentioned for Caltrain is, is a possible partial solution. I would say that there's going to be no silver bullet for any of these. Um, unfortunately, I think that there are some very realistic discussions taking place that for the, you know, medium term, it might be that we're looking at agencies with reduced service. All of, all of the folks I've spoken to have really emphasized not wanting to pass this burden along to workers. So that means that they want to do everything they can to keep their employees working, paid, receiving benefits. Um, and sometimes that the, the trade-off there is needing to reduce um, budget elsewhere, right? Needing to make cuts elsewhere other than labor. Um, and, you know, I think some more Optimistic solutions include working with the state to try to figure out some creative solutions or ideas. But but at this point, I think we are really waiting to see what happens with federal aid. And then we'll have a bit clearer of a picture of what might need to happen um, or what aggressive steps might need to be taken, even more aggressive than already has been, um, to, to balance these, these budgets. Okay. Well, um... That's the long and short of it. You can read Carly's story. Muni tells train riders to get back on the bus over at our sister paper's website, sfexaminer.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, Carly. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend.
We're back with CJ Prusi, author of the recent Quarantine Thoughts essay on getting married during a pandemic. Welcome to the podcast and congratulations, CJ. Thank you, Nick. Great to be here. Well, why don't you just start off by telling us about your wedding and a subsequent honeymoon? Yeah, so uh, we've been together, as I mentioned in the article, we've been together for almost nine years now. So uh, we've been engaged for almost two and a half. And when the pandemic happened, we had hoped to go to Spain over the summer. Uh, Diana wanted to give it as a gift to her mom. Um, and then, of course, all travel stopped. Um, and so it was kind of a spur of the moment thing. We were just by the court and we decided to just go ahead with it. Um, so we got the the marriage license. And then within like a few weeks, uh, the church where we'd wanted to get married reopened. So we talked with the father and and just kind of went with it. Yeah. Did you um, initially want to do something larger? Um, I'm assuming this isn't exactly how you planned things, right? I mean, um, why didn't you no, hold definitely on? definitely not. Um, yeah, we had actually planned to do something that was probably more in like the 100, 150 category just because uh, Diana has 16 aunts and uncles on her mom's side and eight on her dad's side. So even if we had just invited her aunts and uncles, that would have been topping a hundred. Um, and so obviously that gets pretty expensive. So we figured, um, you know, with all the uncertainty and the pandemic, we've been together for so long that we, if something, God forbid, something happened to us, we wanted to just at least have been married. (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, it kind of just realigned our priorities. Totally. Um, and so the honeymoon would have been in, you said Spain, but instead. Yeah. So instead we went to uh, big Sur. Um, we both grew up going, uh, camping and, and stuff. And so we figured that this would just be a great opportunity. It's kind of, uh, at least more so than most other vacations, COVID friendly in that we are able to distance and, you know, just enjoy each other's company. Yeah. So what were some of the things uh, that were going through your mind? Uh, some of the things that you highlight in your piece um, throughout this process? Uh, I mean, it feels, you know, there, there's, there's uncertainty. Um, there's sadness that people can't be there. There might've been a little bit of guilt. I don't know. Why don't you walk us through how it how it felt in the run up to the wedding and during the wedding and and during the honeymoon? Yeah, definitely, it was um, it was a tough decision to make, just because, of course, like I said before, there's so much uncertainty around this um, with transmission, with uh, social distancing, with the masks, um, and we wanted to be super careful. We had already read headlines about you know, graduation parties or weddings being the source of outbreaks. So we wanted to make sure that if we were going to do it, that that we just kind of respected all the guidelines and still made it a celebration. So I think we were able to kind of tread that line um, 
the church that that we were going to already was super respectful of the guidelines. I know there's been a lot of churches in my area that are like <laughs> that are not so much into the you know quote unquote government you, you know <laughs> whatever guidelines um, <laughs> yeah but our church was uh way more respectful of that um so that wasn't a problem but we were you know it was it was hard to tell i mean especially diana's sister who's in texas tell her sorry she was pregnant seven months pregnant when we got married in july so just telling her i don't think it's worth the risk that you come um and then some of my aunts and uncles, I have aunts and uncles in Michigan and Washington. And so that was a hard conversation to have. Like, we would love to have you here. It would mean a lot. But right now, it just, it doesn't make sense. And it's not worth the risk, the p- potential risk to health. So, but we just decided to go forward with it because we knew that we'd have support from our family. We've been together, like I said, for so long that it just made sense to do it right now. Um, when there's so much, you know, uh, sadness, grief, mourning, um, and now even natural disasters going on, we thought it'd be kind of a nice way to celebrate and share with others in that celebration, which is why we streamed it as well. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, from a technical standpoint, how did you pull it off? Uh, what platform did you use to broadcast the wedding? Um, and what did that look like in terms of participation? Like, uh, were there a bunch of video calls and phone calls at the reception? Um, that's multiple questions. I'll <laughs> let you take them. Um, <laughs> no worries. Um, now, uh, so we pretty much just did the one venue, which was Facebook Live. Uh, just because there are so many relatives and it's especially friendly with uh, like an older age group. So a lot of our relatives were on Facebook. So we just created a private group and invited all of the friends and family who had a Facebook that we would have wanted to invite to the wedding. And then we planned the live stream and then people were able to watch. Uh, One of my family friends actually had like a watch party and that, We actually got a lot of positive feedback. Somebody said they were happy. This was the first wedding that they could go to in their pajamas. So they were stoked about that. (laughs) Nice. I know that, uh, for example, um, people who are more of homebodies and and like working from home have found um, that the pandemic's been, you know, a mixed blessing in that regard. And uh, maybe uh, big weddings can be stressful. Um, Were there some upsides? It's funny, actually. Uh, there were several people uh, of our married couple friends that they said that they were jealous of our wedding. They were like, we, had, we <laughs> wish that we had been able to do this. Not that we wished for a pandemic, but we really wanted to do a small wedding like this. So, so that was actually encouraging that there were so many of our friends who were just really supportive and actually excited about about the event. Um, so I think that there really were, at least in our situation, uh, a lot of upsides to focus on. Of course, there is there is always that kind of, I think I write about this in the article, there's always that like worry, the underlying vein of, you know, there is kind of this mass tragedy going on. 
that everybody's experiencing collective grief, but people are going to be experiencing that regardless of whether we have our wedding or not. So might as well try to find kind of a silver lining in it um, and give people, even if it's some small cause, uh, to celebrate. Well, you can read uh, CJ's Quarantine Thoughts essay, My Small Socially Distanced COVID-19 Wedding on sfweekly.com. Um, thanks so much for joining us today, CJ. Yeah, thank you for having me, Nick. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. The episode was produced, engineered, and recorded by me, Nick Veronin. Our theme music was composed by The Armature. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, subscribe to our podcast through Apple or Spotify. Follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash podcast, and check out our website, sfweekly.com. See you next week. <laughs>